Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to uh, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. title of the sermon is The Humble and Selfless Christian. The Humble and Selfless Christian. And our key words are selfish, pride, and others. And I want to say a brief word about that because I don't know that we've really, we have a lot of new people that have kind of come in. And I don't know when the last time we explained the key words. So most of us know it. Some I'm willing to bet do not. So just basically what that means is that we have worshipers in training. You might call them your children. But we're teaching them to to worship here corporately. And part of that, obviously we know that children's attention spans are small. So one tool that we use here at Redeemer are these key words. So the idea is that you would, and you can make a game with your kids about this too, to see, have them mark down, tally marks however you might, you know, and draw little turtles for every time they hear the word selfish or pride or others, but whatever you want to do. But the point is to get them to listen. And they're going to space out, they're going to look away, they're going to, but, you know, when they hear that, maybe they'll, they'll, they'll key in and, and mark it down. And it's just a good thing to talk about. So, I know that's redundant for most of us, but it just occurred to me this week that we might need to mention that again. So at any rate, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So, obviously, Philippians chapter 2 comes after Philippians 1. We know a great deal about Philippians is one of the prison epistles. It's one of the ones that, uh, it's these instructive fatherly pastoral letters that Paul wrote you know, from prison. And then, obviously, this is to the Philippian church. And up to this point in Philippians, Paul spends, so chapter 1, Paul spends expressing love for the church, that church in particular, expressing love and and how his imprisonment has served to further the gospel. He says, among the whole imperial guard, in verse 13 of chapter 1, and to the other prisoners. So he's he's just extolling the idea, and he's, he's saying that, it's, it's what a wonderful thing that I am in prison. You know, I don't know that on any given day Paul would have said, hey, I want to go to prison today so that I can share the gospel you know, with the whole imperial guard. But, but he looks at it as, wow, look what opportunity God has given me. So the gospel was, uh, was spread through the prison. And he goes on and he's talking about being torn to be with Christ and yet also with the church at the same time. Then as you move further through chapter 1, he starts, starting in chapter, or I'm sorry, in verse 27, he, ex, he exhorts the Philippians about how to live, how to stand, and ultimately how to suffer for Christ's sake. And like in, we see in Acts chapter 5, where we saw the apostles rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. In similar ways, Paul is telling the Philippians that it was, indeed, it was granted 
to them. In verse 29, granted to them to suffer. And so, as he's getting into the meat of his letter and this instruction, he's He's going to start it here in our passage today, in, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And it's an exhortation and a call to unity and to selflessness. So we're going to be looking at basically four, four main points today. Uh, first would be introspection of the church. Introspection of the church, a look within. The second point would be a call to unity as the body of Christ. A call to unity as the body of Christ. Thirdly, it would be an imperative to address our main obstacle. An imperative to address our main obstacle. And lastly, the key to unity and love in the church. The key to unity and love in the church. So, our first point was introspection of the church. In verse 1. I just want to point out that Christians should be noticeable. We should be noticed by our godly demeanor and our response to trials because that causes us to stand out as different. It allows us to display our trust in God in the God who judges righteously. Now, that doesn't mean that it's a, it's a stoic and drab false countenance, you know, that, uh, you know, we, we have emotions. We, you know, we respond to things. But ultimately, we will have a godly demeanor in response to trials that wells up from within our core and ultimately will bubble over into the reality of our situation, whatever that may be. So in verse 1, Paul starts off with, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, etc. So if, it's a conditional if. Now Paul's not doubting whether or not these traits are realities in the church. Or, or, if the, or if the people that he's talking to are believers, that's not what he's worried about, or that's not what his point is. After all, he just spent a great deal of time uh, talking about the church in chapter 1 and encouraging her. Uh, he's known this church. He's taught there. Uh, and he affirmed previously in, in, in chapter 1 that they are working hard in the gospel. So he's stirring up the church to examine themselves in, in the following areas that he's going to be talking about before he moves on to the main point of his passage. So he's just setting them up for what follows. So if, um, and you know, often we would use you know, these same sort of, uh, of, of, of you know, devices in our own language. You know, Assuming, when we say it, we're kind of assuming that these things are already true. But it, like I said, he's, he's also wanting them to think about Think about their own lives and their own hearts. So, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, encouragement in Christ, comfort, solace, place of refreshment is what that word means. And these things can only happen in Christ. So like an oasis in the desert, like a, maybe a fortress against an enemy, where you have these strong walls and you know the enemy's on the other side and you can rest in peace. That should be our comfort, our place of refreshment. And when we, because that's what we were created to do. We were created to find rest in Christ. And we spend every sinful day that we have clawing at different ways for our, us to, uh, to, to solve our own problems, to, 
you know, feel more accepted in, in the faith, in the various things like this. But we are simply called to find our rest in what we were created to find rest in, and that is in Christ himself. And we find that, when we find that in Christ, he addresses our true need, our true need of redemption, our true need of sanctification. And he himself mentions this in chapter 11 of Matthew. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Psalm 55, 22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. So Christian, have you experienced that encouragement, that comfort, solace, and place of refreshment in Christ. He goes on from there and says, is there any comfort from love? Once again, Christians stand out due to the love that they exhibit. He's our comfort. Or it is our comfort because it is the one, or I'm sorry, it is our comfort because it is one tangible proof that we are in Christ. 1 John 3.19 says that by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. And John wrote the, the whole of 1 John to articulate and expound upon the idea and the topic of love and all the myriad of ways in which it works its way in and, and, uh, and so forth. But we should have a great comfort from the love that we, that we have in the exhibit. Because one thing that I know all of our hearts were changed that when we became believers is the opportunity and the ability to love as Christ would have us to love. All Christians have experienced love with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And His Word is replete with exhortation and instruction on how to love one another. And you might say, well, it says that in a lot of places. And the reason it says it in a lot of places is because we have a real problem doing that. And it's a hard standard to maintain. I don't think that we really spend enough time contemplating how we should love one another and how we should love God. He goes on in other parts of Scripture, say love is the perfect, is the perfect fulfillment of the law. And in fact, it's, it's so ingrained in us because the ability to love, it's, it's present in all human beings, Christians and atheists alike, because we are all made in God's image. And love finds its peak, its pinnacle in the church as we carry out God's great, great commission. It seeks the good of other people. And it rises above difficulty and strives for peace. Makes great efforts to be a peacemaker. Now we don't always display love or act loving because of our remaining sin and corruption. There's always that, isn't there? There's always that thing. And we often misuse the gift and the ability of love for sinful gain. So Paul is calling for a look within to see what is there in the hearts of the people before he moves on 
So I ask you, Christian, do you know this great comfort? Do you have the comfort of love? He goes on and talks about participation in the Spirit. Participation, fellowship, communion. We have communion with the Spirit, and we have communion with each other. The fellowship that God's people have in the Spirit is the magnetism that draws us and the glue that binds us together. Because let's face it, there are so many of us in this room today that we, if it were not for the gospel, we would not probably be socializing. I mean, this, it's the great equalizer, and it brings all sorts of different people together to pursue the creative purpose that we have. So God gives us purpose, direction, and ability to carry out the imperatives of Scripture. And he also gives us the ability and the encouragement to avoid the negatives of Scripture. All done through the work of the Spirit. So God uses our fellowship one with another to encourage and to hold one another accountable. Just like every time someone joins, we sit here and we talk about and we say the church covenant. And there's a part of that that talks a great deal about, about accountability. And we together... Yes, we have fellowship with the Spirit, but God has also given us each other. And, it's, and when we're talking to one another and have a human interaction, that is another great way to be held accountable. To be able to talk to someone about, say, man, I'm struggling with this. Could you pray for me? And that is a participation in our Spirit. So how is your participation and your fellowship in the Spirit? He moves on, he talks about affection. Affection means tender mercy. Tender mercy. So God has shown us mercy, and we are to be affectionate and merciful to each other. So we treat, when it, when it comes to love, we treat those that we love more differently than those that we don't, or, or those whom we love less, is how I meant to say that. So let's think about it. So I mean... I love my wife in a particular way and, to, and my children to a degree that, you know, there might be a guy I see at the gas station, I cross path. I don't hate the man at all, right? But I, I love him to a lesser degree. So, but when I love my spouse and you use, use her as an expansive, I, when you're in love with someone, there's an air of intimacy and a desire to know them more. Now, not just in a sexual sense, but we... We want to know all about them. We want to know about their likes, their dislikes. We want to know about their joys, their frustrations, and generally what makes them tick. And what ticks them off, I might add, too. You want to know that? Uh, <laughs> that's free. Um, but we're to, we're to exhibit affection and tender mercies to the church and to the outside world. To the church and to the outside world. So the because think about the world we know, the world is hard and it's calloused. And so when you see someone that is truly empathetic, it stands out. Because they're they're empathetic, they're not just self-serving. I mean, we see a lot of people that might empathize, but generally there's a self-serving purpose behind most of that. And ultimately that's going to lead to the next thing he talks about sympathy. Now, sympathy is similar to affection. 
Okay, it's, it's basically it's compassion as opposed to you know, tender mercy. Very similar, though. But this is the ability to empathize with someone, to, in a sense, feel their pain. And we've all been in difficult situations in the past when someone comes along and they'll get down into the muddy, wet trench of life's despair with us. Now, like helpful in, in, in Pilgrim's Progress, they help us out at our own slew of despond. Often, they may not even say much. They may not, you know, we all want to zip in and just swoop in with these magic words, and we all, you know, I mean, those of us who have been around a little while know that there are no magic words. Sometimes, just being there, just being there. I always remember when my father-in-law died. Pastor showed up and he just sat quietly and for a long time. And he just said, eventually, you know, he, he did just kind of read some of God's word. He didn't offer commentary. He didn't do it. He just said, sometimes people just need someone to be there. And that was great help for us at that time. Because we knew that there was compassion there and sympathy towards us. And the inc silent encouragement that we receive from that is immense. And just knowing that someone is praying for us can put a soothing salve on an open wound. As the church, we are called to do life together. And as I alluded to all ago, life happens in the trenches. It's not all, you know, dancing on mountaintops and sunny days. It happens in the very difficult, painful places of life. So Christian, how are you sympathizing with others? And how are you bearing their burdens with them? So our next point would be call our call to unity as the body of Christ. In verse 2, he says, or let me, he says, so if there any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. A pastor prays for his flock, and he wants his flock to grow in grace and to be rooted and built up in love to flourish. In trials, he wants them to hold fast to Christ and to increase in faith. It's not unlike when a child sets out on their own in life and you kind of got to shove them out of the nest and they, and they begin to reflect the values that their parents worked so hard to instill in them and, to, and, he, and use them to succeed in career and life and in godliness. So Paul, when he's saying, complete my joy, he's exhorting them to press on to show who they are in Christ. He wants them to fly and not to flounder. And the way that they, the church, will do that is by being in unity with one another, as he says. Because too often, the church is ripped apart by internal jealousies and internal strifes and division. 
We even learned later on in Philippians that there's some of that going on there that he addressed. But he's calling the church to unity. They must be of the same love and in full agreement of the same mind. That's not saying that, that they're just that, you know, a bunch of robots walking around. But rather that they, and we're not getting to it this week, but right after this passage, he presses on and he elaborates. He says, I want you to have a mind of the same mind, not just any mind, but the mind of Christ. That's an entire other sermon right there talking about the humility of Christ. But that's the mind that I want you to have. I want you to have His mind. And so our life of sanctification is just this honor progression of daily ins and outs, ups and downs, getting chiseled from this hard block of stone that God uses all these things to chip away at us, to, to reveal a beautiful statue, but ultimately to conform us into the image of Christ. And that's the goal. So when we hold fast to the head, which is Christ, we're all on the same path, and we're marching towards the same goal. Just like an army is more effective when they're following the same general, as opposed to one over here that says, you guys follow me, and this over here that says, you follow me. There has to be one guy at the top that gives orders to these guys, who give orders and so forth, but they're following the same guy. And so it goes with the body of Christ. We've learned later on, in, or actually earlier on, in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, he talks about the body. The body, there's many parts, there's many uh, individual uh, uh, gifts and callings and things like that, but they all hold fast together. Everybody has their part, but they're following the same head. And that head is Christ. And that is the mind of Christ that we are to have. So that's what he is encouraging them to be of the same mind. Having the same love and being in full accord. The third point was an imperative to address our main obstacle. Found in the first part of verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. We should learn to love the exclusive language of Scripture. Because there's scriptural, there's exhortations, and then there's prohibitions. So, you know, do all, you know, in everything and do all things, you know, uh, without, you know, without murmuring, complaint, etc. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Paul, I love the exclusive language, and I hope that you would all learn to love it too, because it shows us a great deal about the mark, the goal towards which we're all pressing on. We don't do everything right, but our goal is to be like Christ. And so, in that, we want to, there's things we, we don't want anything to do with in our life. They're going to be there in certain scenarios, obviously, but those are the things that ultimately he's talking about, the old man that we want to starve. And we want to feed the new man is it, so that he would be nourished and grow more. Because we are naturally selfish. <laughs> Anyone that has kids knows that they, you did not have to teach them how to be selfish. You didn't have to teach them how to lie. You didn't, nothing like that. We are naturally selfish. And we look out for ourselves. If you think about it, I, I read airline travel confrontations. 
in 2022 were up 47% as from the previous year, 2021. And there was things like seatbacks. You, know, you always hear about the seatback wars. You know, should I, should I recline my seat and should I, or, you know, because I paid for this and it's my comfort or the guy behind me don't want to, you know, and the next thing you know, they're slugging it out at 30,000 feet and somebody's videoing and going viral. So, you know, there's, there's crying children, there's cramped conditions. Uh, I might add poor airline service. Um, so another freebie, a travel tip. If you keep your expectations for airline travel very low, uh, then it goes a long way to help alleviate those frustrations. Um, to think, so, you know, it's just selfishness. You know, we, we see in our day and age, we see, uh, I mean, there's a very popular movie just put out that uh, talked and shows the reality, the horrible reality of children suffering exploitation at the hands of very, very selfish individuals. There's... It's, it's, just, it's just everything that we talk about is just a me, me, me attitude. It just, it, it, it pervades our society. It comes at us through, from every direction. And it just stokes the fires of, of what's already there, of the selfishness that we have. We just spoke of the virtue of sympathy. Loss of sympathy originates in a selfish heart. Some of the, you know, one thing about God's word is that it, 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 it shows a lot of ugliness, you know, to us. It's not, you know, people claim, oh, you know, this was written by human hands and blah, 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 and it's just for what they want. Man, there's some, there's some weird and wicked stuff in here that I don't know why people even come up with such things. So it's, it's I think of like the Old Testament in times of famine. Mothers should be so sympathetic to their children, but in times of famine, we have records of women eating their own children, cannibalizing their own children. Selfishness is there, and we often don't realize how selfish that we are. Because it isn't a struggle, is it? It's not hard to be selfish. And it shows itself in how we think about others and how we talk about others. And I'm going to tell you that the taproot of selfishness is buried deep and anchored deep in the fertile soil of pride. Pride, conceited arrogance that, that exists in the emptiness of a me-first attitude. It says, pride says that the world shall bow down at my altar. But the whole world, guys, is saying the exact same thing. They all have their own altar, and they all want you to bow down to it, but you want them to bow down to your altar. We're all our own little solar systems, and guess who's the middle of it, right? I'm in the middle of mine, and I think that all you guys should re revolve around me. If you wonder if it's true about you, what's your life like in traffic these days? Let's face it, we think that we are on our own and that everybody is there just simply to annoy us in traffic. Pride and arrogance construct a hard and impervious shell to humility. These exact opposites. Pride and arrogance blind us to anything that may attempt to contradict its self-serving purpose. 
And we see pride in all sorts of different sins that are flaunted these days. You know, you have the whole pride movement and everything like that. We see groups bound together by allegiance to the same sin and finding strength in numbers. And I think that's a testament to the fact that their now seared shut consciences know that this is wrong. They know that this is wrong. So they get enough people together and now they have this echo chamber of their own making, right? That just people sit here and just tell everybody, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. Nobody can stand to hear an alternative viewpoint anymore. We, we stop our ears and we stop, scream. And these things are exacerbated, you know, just more and more these days. So that's what we're like. But you know what? As we describe those things, the Bible says, and such were we. Such was the Philippian church. But 1 Corinthians 6, 11 says, But we were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Praise be to Him. So let nothing, nothing be done from selfish ambition or conceit. The key to unity, our next point, the key to unity and to love in the church. Second half of Verse 3 and then verse 4, it says, But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul's letters have a common theme of a call to unity and to leave selfish behavior behind. Common theme, once again, reiterated, said over and over, because... We need to be told over and over. At least I do. Counting others more significant than yourself is the antidote to self-centeredness. Counting others more significant than yourselves is the antidote to self-centeredness. You cannot do both at one time. Now, you can make pretense and so forth. That's what I was alluding to earlier. I believe a lot of the worldly charity systems, they make a pretense. I'm not saying that they don't generally care for the poor, whoever. But ultimately, there is a self-serving aspect to that. But when we are truly counting others more significant than ourselves, we cannot be selfish in the center of our own universe. Becoming less selfish begins with more humility. So you put this one off and you put on the humility. Put off selfishness, put on humility. We see it all the time in Scripture. Humility and selfishness are like oil and water. You're never going to make a homogenous mixture. Might get muddled for a bit, but they will very much show themselves eventually. Humility is difficult, but it becomes more natural as we pray for it, as we seek it, and as we grow in Christ's likeness. Ask, seek, and knock. You know, we read last week in, in, in our evening service, James chapter 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God, and He will give it to you. So that is, so we must ask God for the things that we wish, that, that we wish to grow in. We've got to ask Him. 
He wants us to ask Him. He beckons us to ask Him. He, he, and, that is, and He will give it to us. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, is a call to humility, meekness, and love. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. That means it's not always easy, y'all. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Y'all, this is not a description of an arrogant and a selfish person. This is the mark. This is the goal. This is what we are aiming towards. Leave all the selfishness and the pride and the arrogance at the cross. Take the humble attitude of our Savior. And as we learned last Sunday evening, if we want wisdom that is from above, that is pure and peaceable and gentle and willing to yield and take the high road, if you will. We must ask for it in a humble heart of meekness and gentleness. And God, as I said a while ago, will give it. So we, this isn't a skirmish. This is a war. we got to wage war against the natural inclination to selfishness and to turn our focus outward. It is just, it's like it's spring-loaded shut towards me all the time. Man, take the springs off. Push them Get our focus away from me. The war does not end because it's a war, okay? And we got to stay the course. We have to face, we have to stay the course in the face of a continual onslaught by the enemy. And he's not always coming with, you know, battle lines drawn and, and frontal attacks. It's very subversive. It's, it's behind the lines. It's sneaking up and it's, it's sabotaging your mind, your thought life, and, and, and putting things there that, you know, you know that, that you wouldn't even normally think, or, or thinking, wow, you know, wow, did you, pardon me, bro, did you see what, Pat, do you think what, what do you think Patrick did the other day? How about that? And then you stew on it, and you're like, yeah, and then you go see Patrick, he's like, hey, brother, and we're, and we just, and, and I said, I'm mad at you. No, I probably wouldn't because we hide those things within our heart. But we've got to put that stuff off. You've never done anything to me. I just love you. I knew you're safe to use an example. Um, but we got, so it's a war. And so we've got to look out for the subversive behind-the-scenes attacks, behind-the-lines attacks. We've got to begin to look to the interests and the betterment of others. As, we, as he says... As he says, we look to our own interests. So it's a good time to point out that. So by the way, this, he's not saying don't look out for yourself. We all do. As a matter of fact, I would be very concerned. All of us you know, would be very concerned if we see one of you and we see that you're not caring for yourself physically, emotionally, spiritually, etc. We want you to care for yourself. That's okay. That's right. And Paul assumes this. And so he's just saying, take that same level of concern that you have for yourself already and naturally and put that towards others. And clearly, the sinful aspect of caring for yourself, as we've been kind of talking a great deal about, is that it can go too far very easily. But, 
but care for yourself. We want you to, to uh, take concern for, for all those things. Because only in Christ, oh, excuse me, only Christ can truly and lastingly affect that change within us. It's not going to come by you're just, I'm going to do it this time. I'm going to do it this time. Oh, man, I'm doing it now. And I'm just, you know, and it's, 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 you're not going to ever get there by climbing up the ladder of the law. Okay? Only Christ can truly and lastingly affect the change within us. So to illustrate this, bear with me for a few minutes. I want to tell you the story about a, it was a book I read. It was, a, it was a, about a man named Ernest Gordon. And it's probably someone you never heard of. It was, the book was called To End All Wars. It was, it was republished under that name in the early 2000s for a movie, which is still on Prime, I think, and I encourage you. It's a good one. The book's better. But it was originally published under a title, Miracle on the River Kwai. Uh, like I said, the movie is really good, and it is a mainstream movie. I keep for selling some others, but it just what made me want to seek out the book was it's like, man, there's, well, I'll tell you about it. There was some stuff in there that was pretty well portrayed and piqued my interest. So, but Captain Ernest Gordon was born in Scotland. He was a company commander in the historic 93rd Highlanders Division of the British Army. They surrendered to the Japanese in Singapore in February of 1942. And he was imprisoned with many others at Changi Camp as well as, and several other camps along the way, but that was the main one. This force, you may have heard through, from history, they were used as slave labor to, by the Japanese, and they were ordered to build the Chunkai Railway, also known as the Burma-Thailand Railway, also known as the Burma Death Railway. And it cost many, 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 many lives. Because these people, they would battle starvation and every other sorts of thing. He describes horrid conditions of the camps. They were starved to death or very nearly or just outside of starvation. They had, he describes, obviously, starvation, brutality of unimaginable degree, all sorts of jungle diseases, exposure to elements, and any Another, any, any number of other unimaginable terrors that may happen to somebody in a jungle environment that's not cared for. And ironically, you would think it would cause the prisoners to band together, but really what it, the effect that he describes is that it was to cause them to withdraw into, them, to withdraw into themselves. They began to hoard the little food that they had, and they disregarded the needs of their fellow prisoners. It was pretty much stoic indifference. Factions sprang up, and they were always fighting to disputing. And while there were still friends in, 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 you know, amongst certain groups of men, they, you know, they're still, he said, even within those small groups, there was a me-first attitude that, that kind of prevailed. No one cared, really, if the other died because it happened so often, so many times per day, and they became, they became hardened to it. And if anything, they were happy, he says, for those who died because they escaped the agony of the camp life. And another reason that no one helped out the sick and dying is because they did not have the strength or the means to do so. If you've ever seen pictures of these guys, I mean, they are just like the death camps in, in, uh, in, in Europe. They're just skin and bones. That's all they were. So, so many died so often they had a special place. They, they, they called it the death house. And once consigned to the death house, a prisoner would simply, that was it. 
He would lay among heaps of dead, and he would wait on that final foe to consume him. And so Ernie, as he's called, and by, as he goes by, he painted a picture. He painted a picture of utter hopelessness, compounded by the complete selfless, or I'm sorry, selfish and indifference. Now he was certain one day that his own death card had been punched when he came down with severe amoebic dysentery, which was one of the very common things they had to deal with, among others. And he suffered from jungle ulcers all over his legs. It affected his nervous system, and he was unable to walk. He was unable to care for himself. And the camp doctor, sadly, had pronounced that death sentence upon him. So, one of his friends, in a caring act of a final goodbye, got the guards to allow him to put Ernie into a small bamboo hut that he, separate from the death house that he had constructed for him. And really, it was just to give him a little bit of respect as he died. He, no one expected him to make it. But that same day that they moved him into there, a man named Dusty Miller appeared at the, at the hut. And not taking no for an answer, Dusty began the awful, disgusting task of cleaning Ernie's ulcered and oozing sores. And then he gave him a bath using rags dipped in a bucket. And finally, began to give him a little bit of extra rice. And all this care, you know, helped him you know, to get better because Dusty would appear each day and repeat this process. Now, Ernie had wondered what drove this man to be so different from those in the rest of the camp, and he finally found out because, as you see, Dusty was a Christian, and his faith had some connection to real life. Ernie had grown up in Scotland, and, I mean, the gospel at that time certainly wasn't, uh, was, was certainly present there, but it was, you know, from what he describes, it was just more of a general, you know, this is what people do. This guy actually made a connection between his faith and real life. He found out that Dusty had been a, once been, a, he was from the north of England, he had once been a pub brawler, and one day he got into a fight and severely beat a man nearly to death, and he did go to jail, and by the power of Christ, he was converted in that jail, just as we see Paul talking about people being converted even in his prison. So Dusty nursed Ernie back to reasonable health. Then he fell ill himself because that was when Ernie realized that the food, the extra food that Dusty had been given him was his own starvation, Dusty's own starvation ration of, of rice. Even on a full, what I say starvation ration, because even at the full amount that, which I think he describes as maybe a tablespoon or two a day, it was terrible, you're starving to death. There's not enough to get, to get you to health. So this gave Ernie the opportunity to return the favor by rallying others around him to scrounge up whatever they could find and nurse Dusty back to health. And Ernie Gordon became a Christian in that camp. He, Dusty, and others began to have Bible studies and, and other scholastic uh, you know, uh, you know, classes with these hopeless prisoners who in turn, many gave their lives to Christ. They would learn the Bible from memory because they were not allowed to have a Bible. So they'd learn it from memory, and they would have energetic debates on all sorts of topics in the marketplace of ideas. By, you know, they would talk to the guys that said, oh yeah, what does the Bible say about this? And they would find that, that the Bible is sufficient for all of life's questions.
questions. And the tenor of the camp began to change as prisoners now began to have a new sense of hope and purpose in their lives. They began to help one another and to show love one another. In the pinnacle of this, he tells a story of a man one day after a, after a, a work detail. They were, the Japanese had all the prisoners standing at attention in, in their columns, and the Japanese were counting, the, the guards were counting the shovels, and they came up one short on shovels. And so the, the head guard said, who's got the shovel? Show himself. Let him come out. You know, otherwise, everybody here is going to suffer. So ultimately, no one, no one said anything. Finally, one guy from the middle of the column came forward. He said, I took the shovel. The guard immediately beat him to death. And as his corpse lay there at his feet, another guard came out of the hut and said, my mistake, I miscounted. All the shovels are there. That was the change that happened in that selfish camp when we saw when the power of Christ began to go through and people quit looking within their selfish selves and they began to look outward. So lastly on that, they, people continued to die. But they escaped that camp to eternal rest in Christ. The allies crept closer. Prisoners were moved, and church began to spread to other camps as they were moved around. And a great revival that history pretty well ignores took place in these Japanese prison camps. After the liberation, Ernie sought out news of his friends, and primarily Dusty Miller. And what he found out was not encouraging because what he found out was that Dusty... Was, had been crucified on a cross by a cruel Japanese warrant officer who had been persecuting him so vociferously, but yet Dusty always had a peaceful countenance upon him. And then the man could not handle it. Ultimately, that was, that was how he left this world. So Ernie's son, Alistair, wrote in the introduction to this book, he says, while so many of his comrades were consumed by anger, he discovered a sustaining belief in God and the capacity for love, even in a death camp. And he goes on to quote his father who said, selfishness, hatred, jealousy, and greed were all anti-life. Love, self-sacrifice, mercy, and creative faith, on the other hand, were the essence of life, turning men, turning mere existence into living in its truest sense. These were the gift of God to men. So in conclusion, selflessness is the kryptonite to pride and selfishness. And we must look out for the interests of others, not just ourselves. We must turn outward. Paul goes on, as I said earlier, in verses 5 through 11, to point to Christ and the fact that he did not leave us without a perfect example to follow. Selflessness, gentleness, and humility cause us to stand out as different in a cold, calloused, indifferent, and unsympathetic world. So, beloved, may we pray to God to show us our own self-serving and arrogant ways so that we may leave them at the foot of the cross so that we may put those things off and put on selflessness and holiness and love and compassion and mercy. Let us pray that the Holy Spirit will do these things in our lives, and He will do so.